Turn to John chapter number 4. So tonight the intent is to provide you with the most comprehensive and systematic study of the rapture that I've ever done. We're going to start with Luke 17. We're going to move to Matthew 24, Mark 13, John 4. We're going to go into 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to compare that to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. We're going to go to Revelation 19. We're going to look at every single aspect. We're going to connect the dots. We're going to closely examine what the Word of God says. We're going to look for continuity and discontinuity. And we're going to let you judge for yourself what you think the the Bible teaches concerning this idea. And we're going to do that at 5 o'clock tonight. For those of you that aren't going to come back to church, no matter even if Jesus was preaching tonight, and there's some of you that it doesn't matter what I say concerning my invitation to you, the live webcast is available, and we'll start teaching at 5.15. I need at least an hour tonight to be faithful to all that we intend on doing. And so you can join us that way. For those of you that can't do that, we will upload it onto Sermon Audio. And uh, hope you'll participate. Let's take a look at John chapter number 4, starting in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. She knows this. She's fully convinced that a messianic figure is coming. John, I think, inserts he who is called Christ so that the reader makes the connection that she's talking about the Christos. She says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. He'll answer these questions that we're having. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? Verse 28 So the woman leaves her water jar and she went away into town and she tells the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, going back, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said one to another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus, hearing this, obviously responds with greater clarity. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit. For eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. New paragraph Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. 
And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then look at this incredible sentence in verse 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Father in heaven, open our eyes to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Give faith to those who need to believe the gospel this morning. Give all of us faith to keep believing the gospel. Bless our efforts this morning to teach and preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So look on the screen with me and see how the opening of the text here starts with, I know that the Messiah is coming. And then I want to draw to your attention that the text ends with, indeed, the Savior of the world. So this is the direction we're going. I want to talk about Messiah with you. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he, the messianic figure, the anointed one, comes, he's going to make everything right. He's going to tell us all things. The woman is responding to the issue of, does Jesus have the authority to bring an end to worship of the Father at Jerusalem? Can Jesus institute worship in spirit and in truth without geographical boundaries, without bloody sacrifices? And Jesus says, I'm he. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Now church, everyone in here, every single person in this auditorium must understand this concept. You do not understand your New Testament if you don't understand the significance of the Messiah. So we want to ask this morning, what are the definitive scriptures that Jesus is claiming to fulfill? And then what does the word Messiah actually mean? Actually, the, the Webster definition is great. Just learn this definition. He's the expected king and he's the promised deliverer of the Jews. Now, what Yahweh intended by that and what they intended by that are two totally different things. They were looking for a king to overthrow who? Romans, right. And that's how they thought they were going to be what? Delivered. That's the deliverance that they were looking forward to. They had no idea that they needed to be delivered from their sins. Why didn't they know they needed to be delivered from their sins? Because these were self-righteous people. They were already keeping the law very well. They didn't need to be delivered from their sins. Uh, they were wanting a king to establish the Davidic throne all over again. And Jesus is not here to do that. And this is what creates this disconnect that we see in the text that we'll talk about in a minute. So our word Christ literally means anointed right here. It's smearing oil on somebody. It's pouring oil on somebody. That's the idea behind this word Christ. It derives its origin from the H up here is for Hebrew. So it is the Hebrew word. And here's the transliteration, Messiah. You see it right there? This is where we're getting Messiah from. So when we see the word Messiah, we know it's a transliteration of the noun that means anointed one. The anointed one. And it derives its origin from this verb over here that means anoint. So from the Samaritan woman's perspective, the Messiah has what? Yeah, has authority right here. And when the Messiah comes, that's not how you spell authority. Uh, uh, next slide. All right. Um, 
I don't want you to know that I can't spell authority. That's pretty embarrassing right there. So turn to Psalm 2 and forget that you just saw that, all right? Um, But this is an issue of authority. This is a huge issue of authority. And I want you to go to Psalm chapter number 2 so that you can see the text that you should know about when we say Messiah. You should go here instinctively in your mind. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. Here it is right here. That's our Greek, English word Lord. And against his anointed. Look down at your translation right now and tell me what you have. Do you have the word Messiah there? Because the King James has Messiah. And I think the Nazbi has Messiah. Am I wrong or right? What's the Nazbi have? Who? Anointed. Okay, it was another passage that we were at in the 8.30 service. Anointed, but there's a note that says Messiah right here. So everyone understands that Yahweh exists and that Yahweh has this anointed one. But who is he? Verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, Adonai, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. So there's our connection right there. We now understand that the anointed one is Yahweh's king. The anointed one is Yahweh's king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. What decree have you made, Yahweh? Yahweh said to me, you are my son. You are my son. So wait a minute. There's a connection we're supposed to be building here. The anointed one is the king who is God's son. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh, serve Yahweh, and over here, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. This is literally pay homage. You could translate this bow the knee, submit to his authority. Acknowledge who he is. And then see how the text takes this strange transition with the word take refuge. And we'll talk about that in a second. So remember that the word Christ is in our Greek translation, New Testament translation. That the word Messiah is a transliteration of this Hebrew word that means anointed. Learn that this anointed one is Yahweh's king and Yahweh's son. Yahweh's king and Yahweh's son. Now look at the very end, verse 8. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that interesting? The very king, the very king that I need to bow the knee to, the very king, Jeff, that I need to honor, kiss the son, lest his anger be kindled against you, is the same person that I can take refuge in. What a thought. No one could imagine for a moment 
that the king that's going to judge you, the king that's going to pour out anger, that that very king that you can hide under his jackets, that, that he'll take you under his wing, that he'll grab you as a small child and say, stand right here, I'll protect you. This is gigantically evangelical, evangelistic, soteriological. This is huge. Shelter, protection from danger or distress. Do you see how theologically significant this is? What is this text cryptically communicating? It's cryptically communicating that the Messiah equals the Savior. Do you see that? All right. So the one you submit to, the one you worship, the one you kiss is the same one who will save you from the wrath of God. So trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, where's the Daniel passage at? What number do I put right here on this first blank? You've got 12, you've got 12 chapters. Which one? Nine? Did I hear nine? Yeah, you are correct. And then where are we going? Nine what? I heard 25. Is that, is that right? Yeah, 25 will work. 24 will work. That's excellent. So go ahead and turn to our Daniel passage. If you don't have it underlined in your Bible, go ahead and underline it at this point. If you don't have it underlined, go ahead and underline it at this point. This is the passage that drove the train for the excitement of the Messiah. This is the passage that drove the train for the excitement of the Messiah. It starts in verse 24 with this idea of 70 weeks that is understood to be 490 years. 490 years and you'll get to see the Messiah. Now what made it so hard to do the 490? What made it so hard to do the 490? Did they know when it started? No, they didn't. Because there were three different edicts about going back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, followed by Ezra, followed by Nehemiah. So let me go over here with you guys. Do I start the clock? I'll do it like this. Do I start the clock here? Do I start the clock here? Or do I start the clock here? Where do I start the 490? Which edict was it one that lets me go back and start going 400 years, 425, 432, 470? You all follow what I'm saying right here? Because they know it's coming. This is why your whole intertestament period, post-Malachi, pre-Matthew, is filled with messiahs showing up. Anybody that knows, read about this intertestament period, and it's all kinds of messianic figures showing up. And, and this is why John the Baptist, Evan, is asking, are you the one, or is there what? Another one to come. Because we're trying to figure out this messiah. Because nobody's expecting, Matt, that the Messiah is going to die. The Messiah's not dying. What's the Messiah doing? He's establishing an eternal throne in Jerusalem. He's not going to a cross. We know this because Peter like has a fit when Jesus suggests about dying. He's like, no, that's not happening. I will make sure that doesn't happen. And so here's our text. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to a coming of an anointed one. 
And this is, I don't understand why the, the ESV is so inconsistent. Because we just saw in Psalm 2, what was that A right there in Psalm 2? It was an uppercase A. And here it is a lowercase A. I don't understand this. Because clearly, this anointed one, a prince, is more than a human being. Now, look in your Bible now and tell me, what's the Nazbi have? See? So in Psalm 2, Georgiana, they have anointed and a Messiah here. And then in Daniel 9, they have the word Messiah here. And you're wondering to yourself, did we have two different translation committees that didn't talk to each other? King James Bible. Who has the King James this morning in your lap? Anoint the most holy. Okay. Um, I, there's one section in there where the word is Messiah there. Um, and so again, this is what drove the train to look for this anointed one. This anointed one. And again, here in the, in the, uh, on Blue Letter Bible, on the screen for you, this is the Septuagint. That's why it has a G right there. And it says Daniel 9.25, because you know your Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But when I look at the Greek translation, 5545, 5547, see these two numbers right here? When the numbers are that close, I know that the root word is nearly identical and we're dealing with small, minor issues here. So here, look in the screen with me right here. Here's our word chrisma. Here's our word Christos. Just a slight variance right here. And this is our word for Christ. And again, both these words have a root word behind them, which is a verb to mean anoint or literally smear. This is the smearing of oil. You remember when um, the prophet anoints David, anoints Saul? This is the idea. All right, back to our text, John 4, 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled at what he's talking about. And they said, but they don't say. No one says, what do you seek or why are you talking? No one says this. This is what they're thinking. And the woman left her water jar. She goes back in time and she's asking everyone, I think I've met the Messiah. I'm really convinced I met the Messiah. Why is she asking about the Christ and not the Savior? The reason is because there are many, many more prophecies about a Messiah than a Savior. If you, if you want to look, for example, here's John chapter number 7. In verse 31, the Christ. In verse 41, the Christ twice. In verse 42, the Christ. Chapter 10, the Christ. Chapter 11, the Christ. Chapter 12, the Christ. Chapter 20, the Christ. As opposed to one reference to Savior in the entire book of John. I was shocked by that. I, I wasn't expecting that. That there is only one reference in the book of John about Savior. It's all about Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed king. So they say, Rabbi, eat. But he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They're not on the same sheet of music. Okay? They're talking Reuben sandwiches delivered by DoorDash, and he's talking something completely different. I'm going to take my hands to show you what I mean. There's the disciples talking, got it? And here's Jesus talking. He's going north-south and they're going east-west and they're not going to intersect until they figure this out. So they say, has anyone brought him a sandwich? Did someone deliver him something? And so now Jesus really breaks it down for them and says, my food is to do the will 
of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's an amazing sentence, isn't it? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. What if we, what if we could get more concerned about doing his will than what we eat for lunch and dinner? Come on. If we're all honest here, we ask these three questions nearly all day long. What's for breakfast? What are we eating for lunch? And I'm texting my wife going, what are we having for supper? What do you call it? Do you call it supper or do you call it dinner? What do you call it? Dinner? It's supper, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Lord's Supper. It's scriptural, actually. Um, but but uh, let's, let's not lose sight of this. Is America's church today concerned about doing the will of God? Is this a priority to us? Jesus is saying that he must suffer and be crucified. He must atone for the sins of the entire world as the Lamb of God. He must secure the salvation of all who will believe God's elect. And he must rise from the dead. And he calls all this his food. This is his food. This is what the disciples are not getting. And he's cryptically setting the conditions so they're not ambushed by this. So I ask you today, is doing his will a priority to you? I would argue that for most Christians, God is a moralistic therapeutic deity. So doing God's will, accomplishing his work, it's not a priority. How many people do you meet that are fully convinced that they're Christians and you think, I don't know what kind of Christian you think you are. Would you say that's an occasional thing? Or would you say that's normative when you meet people? An occasional thing or normative? Yeah, I think we've set the conditions that we give people a false perception, a false assurance. I don't think we understand the degree to which God expects us to bear Christ's image, to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and raise godly families, to love my neighbor, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to worship the Lord Jesus 24-7, 365. That this needs to be a priority in my life. For most Christians, God sits on a shelf until they need him. This has to change, church. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Would you please this morning ask yourself, starting tomorrow morning at whatever time you wake up, four, five, six, seven, whenever you roll out of the rack, will the thought of doing the Father's will even come into your radar? How long will you go into the week until you decide, I need to be thinking about the Father's will for my life? Will it be Tuesday or Wednesday? When will you make it a priority to think, what would the Holy Spirit have me to do? What must I be doing right now to serve the Father? What is the number one thing the Lord wants me to be doing? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus doesn't let this go. In Mark chapter number 3, verse 35, he'll say, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, he is my sister, he is my mother. Let me say it differently so that we get some clarity here. When someone comes to you for assurance of their salvation, they want to have a conversation about how do you know you're saved and I want to know if I'm saved. When was the last time you said, well, do you do the will of the Father? That doesn't even come in our radar. Our radar is, have you asked Jesus in your heart? Okay, we've let that. Then we'll, here's the new one. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? You're using biblical language? No. Show me where that's in the Bible. Go ahead, text me this afternoon. You have my phone number, most of you. Let me know what book and chapter that comes out of. Did you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You know what the scripture wants to know? Are you busy doing the will of the Father? Are you committed to doing the will of the Father? Are you committed to making, accomplishing His will a priority in your life? 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, there is no assurance of eternal life for those who care nothing about doing the will of God. Now, John, I am not saying, do not misunderstand this. Let me stop and be clear. I am not, hear me well, please. I am not saying that there's a level of righteousness where we achieve it, and now I'm good. I'm not saying that. John, I'm saying that we're concerned about it that it's a priority to us, that we think about it, that we know that we're supposed to be listening to the Holy Spirit. We know that he has a will for our life in unique situations. For example, here's one. It's always God's will that I'm kind. That I'm kind. Be ye kind. Now look, there's a kind way of chewing somebody out. And there's an unkind way of chewing somebody out. We're, we're not saying that you become a marshmallow. That's not what we're saying. If somebody needs to be rebuked, Marcus, they need to be rebuked. But there is a kind way of doing it and there is an unkind way of doing it. I've been guilty of doing it the unkind way. I was wrong. I was a sinner. I needed to repent. I need to beg for forgiveness and trust that Christ does forgive our sin. We're not saying, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's a threshold of righteousness that we're working hard to try to get to. Our righteousness is in Christ Jesus, pure and simple. We are saved by God's grace. We're not mixing these things. But when God gets a hold of you, makes you a new creature in Christ, your priorities change. And doing the will of the Father becomes a priority. Why is this? Because true regeneration always results in being a new creature 
or creation in Christ. Always. So those who believe are regenerated. This is the idea of being born again. This is the spiritual work of the Lord in our hearts and minds and souls and being. You cannot believe unless you're regenerated. And those who are regenerated will continue to believe. And they are transformed and are being transformed into new creatures in Christ. For those of you that are new to this idea of sanctification, it can be defined as the combined work of God the Holy Spirit and the individual believer in Christ-like transformation. So verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus takes all this literal agrarian language and he just spiritualizes it galore. He says, already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. In other words, folks are getting saved right now, pre-cross, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. So Jesus is saying there are souls ready to be harvested. Hearts are softened to hear the gospel. And the issue is the lack of laborers working in the field. And the reason there's a lack of laborers is because doing God's will is not a priority in America. It's not. We need to own that. And we need to ask ourselves, is it a priority in my life? Is it a priority in my life? Verse 37, one sows and another reaps. This is the way it is. Man, it's awesome when you get to sow and reap. How many have been there before when you get to sow and reap? Is that not an incredible? What are you talking about? You know, when you bring someone to the full knowledge of Christ, you've been witnessing with them. You've been sharing the gospel. It's a glorious thing. You've been sowing, sowing, sowing. And then you get to see the fruit of your labor, Caleb. And you're like, man, he trusted Christ today. But that, Jeff, is not normative. That's not normative. Normative, Paul, is one person pours in, pours in, pours in, pours in, pours in, pours in, and then somebody else reaps from all that sowing, all that incredible planting. How many have actually ever physically sowed something in the ground, actually ever put some seeds? I mean, it's boring. John, John corrects me. It is not boring. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, let's do it together. Seed, 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 seeds, and more seeds, and then a row of seeds, and let's get some more seeds. Wow, see how much fun I'm having right here? Come on. I want the watermelon done. I want it juicy, pink, and ready to grab and take it in and slice it in half. And enjoy the dripping juice, you know, down your sin, onto your white shirt. Amen. Well, Jesus is using a very agrarian idea for us. And he's saying it's wonderful to eat the watermelon. But you're benefiting from the person who did not think it was boring to sow. That they are planting and planting and planting. 
So Clint, we're not talking about planting seeds. We're talking about the proclamation that there is a God. We're talking about the reality that God's son is Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that God made you in his image and desires for you to come to Christ. It's the constant, constant statements of who God is and what he's all about and just planting, 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 filling people with the truth. Are you involved in that? Will you do any of that this week? Will you open your mouth and say something that gives some indication to somebody that you believe there's a God? Who am I sowing into? Who from the next generation am I sowing into? How am I sowing? Well, I would submit to you that this is the first way and the priority way in the Deuteronomy chapter number six, verse four through seven way. It's mom and dad. It's you, Josh, recognizing that God gave you Elijah and God gave you Daniel. And it's your responsibility to pour into them. Pour into them. John, you've got three daughters, right? You're the spiritual leader of this family and it's your job to just dump gospel-centered, God-centered truth in their hearts. Just pouring it in, pouring it in, pouring it in. And man, we hope that it comes to fruition. You want to know beyond a doubt that both your boys are saved and truly come and your daughters come to Christ. Yes or no, parents? Absolutely. And this is a major way that God does it. But it's not the only way. There are lots of ways. There's ministries on Fort Liberty that are all involved about planting seeds, sharing the gospel. There's all kinds of ways that you should be doing it in your job and in your unit, home and at work and business. There's this incredible Wednesday night ministry that we have called Awana in which we take children from homes in which nobody's sowing anything into their hearts and minds and you could be involved in this. So how are you involved in sowing? I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have not entered into their labor. Paul said it like this. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the growth. This is all a God thing. All right, let's wrap it up with this transition that occurs that is just beautiful and I want you to see it in scripture. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So watch this beautiful transition that happens in the scripture. Let's see it together. When the Samaritans came to him, this is Jesus, they asked him to stay for two more days. And he complied. What would it have been like, Gene, to be with Jesus for those two days? There's no New Testament. It's all Old Testament at this point. How much, Lynn, does he open up the Old Testament to them? How much does he just lay it out? How much Jesus does he show them in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? How much Jesus does he show them in the conquest? How much Jesus does he show them in King James? I mean, how, what would it, was it eight hours a day? Ten hours a day? Was Jesus just teaching to the point of exhaustion? How much would they have just seen this incredible eyes just opening? Because look at the next verse. What's verse 41 say? Look, what do we see next here? There's this transition that happens. And many more believe because of his word. Because of his word. 
Let's go back down here to our front row to Elijah and Daniel. It's the worst seats in the place. Let me get this pulpit out of the way so I can really preach to you boys. You sat in the wrong spot, sister. I'll just tell you that right now. Everybody knows better than to sit next to those guys. Josh, from the very beginning, you told Elijah first and Daniel that there is a God and God made them from the very beginning, from like as early. Is that correct? And mom, you just superimposed that same thing. And, and from as long as you can remember, these boys have believed that there is a God. His son is Jesus who died for their sins. Is that not true? Right? Lynn, that is the woman believed they believe because of the woman's testimony. Your boys believe this to be true because they're counting on the fact that you're telling them the truth. You're their dad. They look up to you, mom. You're everything. Same whole truth with you guys. But your goal and your goal is to move them to the point where they no longer believe because my daddy told me. They believe because the Lord told me. Amen. Do you see that transition? That is so important for us to get to. This is where their faith moves from a faith that's grounded in the truth that my dad taught me to a faith that's grounded in the reality that I have an individual and personal relationship with Christ. Mom and dad, get this. Get this. Pray towards this transition. Desire this transition. Plead with the Lord for this transition. On behalf of your children, Matt, on behalf of your two boys, beg God to open their eyes to the glorious gospel so they can look at you and say, Dad, I don't believe because of what you said. I believe because I had a walk and an encounter with the Lord. We are too content, Josh, to get them to the point that they believe because of what dad said and we're not pushing them enough to believe because they had an encounter with the Lord. Are y'all getting this this morning? Every mom and dad should be listening intently to what I'm saying right now. Not because of what me and what my wisdom is, but because of how the text shows you this transition that occurred. They believe because of the woman. They believe because of their encounter with Christ personally. And you are praying towards that end. Your desire is to see them make this transition. And the text is so beautiful in this. So this morning we ask you the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that God made you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son? Do you believe that you've sinned and offended a holy and righteous God? Do you believe that your just punishment is eternal separation from God for your sin? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived a sinless life, died on a bloody cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that you might have life everlasting? Church, we don't do an invitation in this church. We don't call the pianist up and have a just as I am without one plea moment. We don't dim the lights and play the song slowly and meticulously. We don't beg you, Lucas, to come, 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 pleading, pleading. What you just saw right there, that was our invitation. Believe. 
You say, but isn't there a decision card to fill out? No, there's no decision card to fill out. Isn't there an aisle to walk? No, there's no aisle to walk. Isn't there a pray to prayer? No, there's no prayer to pray. What must I do to be saved? I must believe that Christ died for my sins. I must trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I take all my righteousness. None of me. It's all you. You don't need to leave your pew for that. You don't need to walk an aisle for that. You don't need to bow a knee. Boys, you have to trust Christ for yourself. And we believe that that's what the New Testament teaches. And because that's what the New Testament teaches, that's what we teach. I love the language for we have heard for ourselves. Have you heard for yourself? So they decide this is the savior of the world. This is the savior of the world. This is incredible. See the transition in the narrative. Jesus of Nazareth, Yahweh's Messiah, is the savior of the world. Yahweh's son, Jesus, is on the planet. And Yahweh's king is walking and talking among the world of Adam's humans. He's teaching them about the kingdom. He's showing them that he is the king. He is Yahweh's Israel. And Yahweh's Israel rejects him to the point of crucifying him. And can you believe this was all God's plan? Let me finish it up with you. ENT, Ethnic National Territory Israel, brought the Messiah into the world. And ENT Israel crucified that same Messiah and both was God's predetermined plan. Let me illustrate this and we'll be done. Here's this bottle of water and I want to use it as an illustration and I'll need a few of you to participate. I want you to imagine for a moment that this bottle of water represents the Genesis 3.15 promise. And if you don't know the Genesis 3.15 promise, shame on you, learn it. It is the promise that an offspring of Eve is going to give birth to one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Everyone follow me on that. And this is the Genesis 3.15 promise. And Eve has this promise in her hand. Adam has this promise in their hands. They are holding this bottle of water. And then they pass it off to Drew right here. So Drew takes a hold of it. And Drew's Seth. Not Cain. Not Abel. Drew is Seth. And now Seth has the promise. Everyone follow me right now? Adam and Eve don't have it anymore. Seth has it. Y'all follow me. And then, and then Seth passes it off. And we're going to go all the way to Noah. Would you mind participating? And, and now this is Noah. And now Noah has the promise, right? Because it's got to keep going from generation to generation. Are y'all following me? And then Noah has three sons, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And who's the one that gets it? It's Shem, right? It's Shem. And so Noah passes it to Shem. And now Shem's got the promise. Are y'all following me right now? And, and we're, are we going to let this bottle of water get lost? It's got to pass down from generation to generation, doesn't it? And so now Shem has it. And ten generations later, or nine, Shem passes it to Terah. Who's Terah? He's the father of who? Abraham. He's the father of Abraham. And so now Terah has it. But Terah doesn't hold on to it. Who's he pass it off to? He passes it off to Abram. Would you mind participating? 
And now here's Abram, and Abram has the promise, right? And Abram doesn't even have a son. Jordan, holy cow, who's he going to pass it off to? He doesn't even have a son. And Abram starts begging God for a son. And we try this Ishmael thing, and God says, no, not Ishmael. It's going to be one born of Sarah. It's going to be a miracle. And finally, Isaac does it. And i got to move back up here because of the silly camera. Jerry, will you participate? And now Isaac's got the promise. And then Isaac has two sons, do you remember? Esau and Jacob. And it should go to Esau, right? That's the firstborn. We're expecting to go right there. And God says, nope. Not Esau. And really, we're shocked at this point. Let me have that water bottle back. And so Isaac passes it over to who? Jacob. Big Jacob this time, Chris. Hold it up real high. And now this is Jacob. And Jacob gets a new name. What's his new name? Israel. And Israel holds on to the bottle of water for almost 2,000 years until Mary takes a hold of the bottle. Mary does, John. Mary, the one that was betrothed to Joseph. And then the seed is born. Y'all getting it? And no one needs to hold on to the water bottle anymore because the walking, talking seed is now alive on the earth. And then that same ethnic, national, territorial Israel that preserved the promise for 2,000 years kills the Messiah kills the Messiah. And Peter stands up, Josh, in Acts chapter 2 and says, this was God's plan. Not plan B. This was always God's plan. Israel rejects the Messiah and here's Jesus up north evangelizing Samaritans. That's not an accident. Jeff, that's showing us that God always intended on taking the gospel to the nations. It went from the Jews to the Samaritans and ultimately to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us, oh God, a passion to know you, to know your word, to know these incredible points of continuity that connect the old to the new, that move us through 66 books written first in Hebrew and Aramaic and then in Greek, 40 different authors, 1,600 different years of human history putting together this incredible book that we often take for granted. Give us, O oh Lord God, a passion to know your word and to see how this promise has been fulfilled. In Jesus' name, amen.